Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Stimulus struggles, DC talks continue, but too late for thousands of airline workers. Tokyo takedown, a hardware glitch, brings stock trading to a halt. And Golden Week getaway, China embracing the benefits of a staycation. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to be back with you. We're now, what, 36 hours after the U.S. presidential mudslinging match. And perhaps the only thing we aren't left debating is the benefits of a mute button. We've got all the latest on that. Nothing muted, however, about Singapore's efforts to regalvanize its tourism sector. And big news from South Africa also today. We're going to be taking you live to both places for the latest. For now, though, the curtain rising on a new trading month and quarter, the final quarter, in fact, of 2020. Wow, we are green, as you can see, pre-market in the United States. A positive handover, too, broadly from Europe as well, while in Asia, China, South Korea and Hong Kong were closed for the holidays. Obviously, we had the technical glitch in Japan, too, which we will explain shortly. The big question, of course, is can we add to the Q3 gains that we saw here in the United States? We're talking 7% plus across on Wall Street. The answer here, at least, probably lies to a larger extent in Washington, D.C. The emergency aid talks continue. The noises are good. The price tag, though, is high and perhaps still too high for many of the more conservative Republicans. Washington's inaction is costing jobs today. The major U.S. airlines have already announced 30,000 job cuts. Thousands more are at stake. They were hoping for an extension of the CARES Act aid money. There is bipartisan agreement, and that's the heartbreaking thing. But it follows Disney's decision to cut 28,000 workers this week. They cited simply a lack of clarity over when life will return to normal, in addition to the impact on their theme park's business. The bounce back recovery is slowing, and this is key. Data this morning showing more than 26 million Americans continue to collect some kind of employment assistance from the government. More than 830,000 more claiming first-time benefits in the past week. We're seven months into this crisis. We'll get the definitive word on jobs tomorrow when the last U.S. payrolls report before the presidential elections is given. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us. I think you used a great word on social media, dizzying. A dizzying level of job cuts just in the last 48 hours and no help in sight from Congress. No. And and look, a job is probably the most important thing in this economy right now. Everything flows from that. The ability to pay the bills, the ability to keep the household solvent, and the jobs crisis has just been unrelenting. You look at that 837,000 job cuts, there are layoffs, first-time unemployment benefits claims, and then you can add on to that another 650,000 people who under the gig worker and self-employed programs that were created for the pandemic have also filed. So that's 1.4 million people in just a week. That 
that dizzying list of names. You mentioned Disney, 28,000 there. No clarity on when life will get back to normal. Airlines starting to lay people off. They are layoffs. They are not furloughs. Uh, the airlines say they will hire them back if they get relief from Congress. But for right now, these are considered job cuts. Shell, uh, Marathon, Continental, the tire company. I mean, you go down this list of, of names in, in all of these different spaces that have been hurt so badly by the pandemic. And there's a long list of companies that have laid off thousands of workers just in the past 24 hours or so. Yeah, and this is also the key, Christine, because we're sensitive to this, but that one of the heartbreaking things about that debate this week was the lack of discussion about a game plan for the economy, recovering right. the millions of jobs that we've lost since this pandemic began and, and th what the next four years looks like in terms of addressing some of the inequalities in the American economy. Oh. If we look at the highest paid jobs, we're back to where we were in, in yeah. January. If we look at the lowest paid jobs, employment's still down 15%. Stimulus yeah, is one part of this, but it's not all of it. Yeah, I mean, 82% of the jobs lost since February, according to the Chamber of Commerce, uh, were in in uh, you know in service sector jobs. Eighty to eight out of 10 of those, and many of those have not come back. Many of those have turned into temporary, temporary have turned into permanent job losses there. So you'll see that K-shaped recovery and the bottom leg of that K will will be leisure, retail, hospitality. And that is just it's so scary because so many of those are low-wage jobs in the first place. These families don't have a lifeline. You know, there was a Harvard study that was published uh, just just moments ago, really, that, that showed that 61% of families with children under the age of 18 have suffered financial hardship, and it's disproportionately uh, minority families that have suffered the most financial hardship, and those tend to more, more predominantly be people in those service sector jobs that have been hit so badly. So the inequality that could be cemented here by whatever this recovery looks like is just terrifying. And Congress is not close, not close to a deal, we're told right now, to try to get aid, even a little bit of aid out again um, as we head into the fourth quarter. You know, it's interesting, Christine, because you were mentioning Disney, Dow, Royal Dutch Shell, another one. So for me, these are giant companies yeah. now that are making significant job cuts. And that tells you something about the struggle for much, much smaller and medium-sized businesses yeah. in order for this to filter up higher, quite frankly. And to your yeah. point, again, um, now is the time to provide greater support. I think small business is really going to get hammered in October and in November unless they do something quickly. I mean, waiting until uh, the next... Uh, the next year uh, after the election here, I just I think that small business is going to get really hammered. There's a foreshadowing of that. The ADP number yesterday that job creation in small business has, has slowed so substantially and the PPP is gone. It's going to be really an ugly fall unless they can do something here. Yeah, and the, the sad, the heartbreaking part of all of this is that there is bipartisan agreement on providing support on many yeah. of these things. It's just wrapped up in a border package. Yeah. Compromise, guys, <laughs> compromise. Quickly. Christine. Yeah. Christine Romans, thank you for that. All right, the Tokyo Stock Exchange suffering a major outage. A technical glitch forced the exchange to completely halt trading for the whole day. The first time ever that that's happened. Selena Wang has all the details. Julia, the Tokyo Stock Exchange has halted trading for an entire day because of a hardware failure, an issue switching to a backup device. The exchange said that it is planning to fix the issue and get back to normal trading tomorrow. But this does still mark the worst breakdown the Tokyo Exchange has ever had. Previous outages had only impacted part of the trading day, with the last major one in 2005 when trading was halted for four and a half hours. That actually led to the resignation of the exchange's president at the time. 
Now, Japan's stock market is worth about $6 trillion. It's the third largest in the world after the U.S. and China. What this outage means is that buying and selling of thousands of shares are frozen. It is, however, a sigh of relief that this outage may only last one day. Investors have been on high alert for any glitches after the August cyber attacks in New Zealand that caused multiple days of trading halts. This outage does also shut down one of the only major exchanges operating in Asia today because of the national holiday. You have Hong Kong, South Korea, Taiwan, and China's markets that are all closed. In fact, China's markets are shut down for several days for Golden Week. This glitch also comes on the same day that a closely watched report from the Bank of Japan was released. That tracks economic sentiment from Japanese companies and showed that the worst may be over for the Japanese economy, but confidence is still far below pre-pandemic levels. And this outage could also dampen investor confidence in the Japanese market and put pressure on stocks when trading restarts. Julia? Selena Wang there. Thank you for that. Now, a golden week rebound in China, the country's massive tourism industry cranking into high gear at the start of the eight-day holiday, celebrating the founding of the People's Republic in 1949. Domestic hotel bookings have already overtaken the level made this time last year. David Cover is in Beijing with the latest. The start of China's Golden Week holiday, celebrating the country's founding, leading to crowds like this. Travelers wearing masks, but standing shoulder to shoulder at the train station. This marks the first major travel holiday in China since the coronavirus outbreak began more than eight months ago, which makes this the first major test of COVID-19 containment here. Going back roughly to April, we've seen significant easing of restrictions across China. Sure, there have been cluster outbreaks, including one here in Beijing back in June. But many here are more worried about the spread in other parts of the world. And so most mainland Chinese travelers are staying within China's borders for their holiday, feeling a bit more protected, perhaps. But it makes for a crowded bubble. From October 1st through the 8th, China Tourism Academy estimates there will be some 550 million domestic trips taken. That is nearly 70 percent of the trips taken at the same time last year. Hotel bookings, however, are up 50 percent from 2019. And so, too, is same city and short distance travel. Think staycation. Recent college graduate Stuffy Liu normally prefers to go abroad. But this year, she's among the millions planning a trip to another part of China. My main concern is the type of transportation. I want to make sure to stay in a familiar environment, which is safer so as to make sure there's not too many unfamiliar people mixed together. The last significant travel holiday here was the Chinese New Year. And while Beijing's Tourism Bureau canceled all large-scale celebrations for the holiday, we were at the Beijing train station as people crowded in to head to their hometowns. Very few wearing masks. No immediate worries, so it seemed. Three days later, Wuhan, the original epicenter of the pandemic, went on lockdown. And the streets of major cities like Shanghai went bare for weeks. This was the iconic Bund in February. But gradually, social life resumed. In April, more people venturing out. And just last weekend, the nighttime crowd packed in, most ditching the face masks. Major indoor events like this Beijing auto show also attracting crowds, a sign that many who, for weeks, were shuttered in their homes now feel increasingly comfortable that the virus will stay contained. It is worth noting not everyone in China is traveling freely for this holiday week. For example, there are restrictions in major cities like Shanghai for students. They're not allowed to leave the city unless they're willing to do two weeks quarantine before returning to the classroom. But the real focus is going to be on the days after Golden Week to see if cases rise or if containment is as strong as China's central government portrays. 
David Cover, CNN, Beijing. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In the United States, the Commission on Presidential Debates says it will change the format for the remaining meetups between Donald Trump and Joe Biden to ensure a more orderly discussion, quote, after Tuesday's night's chaos. More than 73 million viewers tuned in for what many critics are now calling the worst debate in modern American history. CNN White House correspondent John Harwood joins us now from Washington. John, great to have you with us. I was half and only half joking about the possibility of a mute button being used going forward. Just talk us through what some of the options are that are being discussed. It's striking, Julia, that the Commission on Presidential Debates, which has existed for a couple of decades to try to bring uh, orderly discussions between the two presidential nominees to the American people, is on the verge of changing their procedures and rules for these debates because the incumbent president of the United States can't or won't behave himself on stage. He disrupted that debate uh, and turned it into a mess. Now, uh, what do you do about that if the president is determined not to follow rules? Maybe not very much. They're discussing ways in which they can limit the uh, interruptions by the president on Joe Biden and Joe Biden's uh, back to the president. One way to do that is to give the moderator the uh, possibility of cutting off the microphone of somebody who is violating the rules. Now, there's a way to do that, but with the moderator making the decision, there's a way to do it automatically. So you would not have discretion by the moderator because if the moderator used discretion, that would be the subject of an attack from, uh, say, the president and his supporters that they're trying to to, uh, mute the president. We don't know where they're gonna come down on this. We know that they have rules about two-minute responses, for example, and if somebody goes over, you could you could have uh, the other candidate's mic muted while the first candidate is taking the two minutes. Uh, but we don't know where they're going to come out. They haven't said, uh, but it is a uh, remarkable situation after that mess of a debate on Tuesday night. Yeah, electric shock treatment's another option. Uh, remarkable is one word for it, John. Um, one of the more serious discussions was the president's perceived unwillingness to denounce white supremacy in America. And he was tackled once again on this yesterday. I just want to play uh, his response for our audience and then we'll get your views. I've always denounced any form, any form, any form of any of that you have to denounce. But I also, Joe Biden has to say something about Antifa. It's not a philosophy. These are people that hit people over the head with baseball bats. He's got to come out and he's got to be strong and he's got to condemn Antifa. And it's very important that he does. All of that should be announced, John. Does he need to be specific? What do we make of this? That was simply, uh, Julia, a reiteration of what he said on Tuesday night at the debate. Mm. He said any of that. He didn't say what it was. He didn't denounce white supremacy. He went back to the idea that the problem is uh, Antifa and violence on the left, even though his own FBI director and uh, his own Homeland Security officials have said the uh, preeminent problem with domestic violence in the United States is from white supremacist groups. The president will not denounce them. Why? Because they are on his side in the election. The president and the Republican Party have locked themselves into a strategy of depending almost exclusively on white votes to win election and almost exclusively appealing to white voters. Uh, That inevitably takes them to a position where uh, they rely on more and more of the extreme uh, white voters. Now, 
It's not working for them right now because the more uh, explicit appeals to racism get, and we saw the president turn back to open racism at his uh, rally in Minnesota last night, uh, casting Ilhan Omar, United States citizen, who's a member of Congress, as uh, somebody who's not from the United States, even though she is an American. Uh, the more obvious those appeals are, the more you turn off some of those uh, uh, better educated, college educated white voters who, who don't like racism. And that's a problem for the president, but he and the Republican Party are moving down this path of, of appealing more and more intensely to white voters, and that's why it leaves us in this position. John Harwood in Washington for us there. Thank you so much for that. All right, coming up here on First Move, the U.S. airline industry facing a devastating month of job cuts as federal aid dries up. A major trade group will explain what all this means. Plus, two major tourist destinations get back on their feet. Singapore and South Africa look to rebuild their brands. We'll take you there to find out what's going on. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are green pre-market as investors await new developments in the D.C. emergency aid talks. As you can see, the tech stocks are outperforming after what was a pretty rough September for global markets overall. The Nasdaq and the Shanghai Composite falling some 5%. As you can see there, the German DAX, the relative winner, down just 1.4%. What can the fourth quarter bring? In the short term, Plantier shares up some 3% pre-market following its direct listing debut yesterday. Remember, we were talking with Scott Gallo earlier this week about that one. The controversial data software firm finished Wednesday's trade up a solid 30%. Meanwhile, major U.S. banks gaining pre-market, that despite the Federal Reserve announcing that it will not lift restrictions on stock buybacks and dividend hikes for the sector until at least January. I think that was clearly expected. Now, October begins a devastating blow to the airline industry. Tens of thousands of jobs will be lost as the U.S. government's payroll support program expires today for airline workers. Without further federal intervention, the axe is falling on 19,000 jobs at American Airlines and 13,000 at United. Add to that, 17,000 other employees throughout the industry have been told their jobs are also at risk. Nicholas Callio is president and CEO of Airlines for America, the trade association for leading airlines in the U.S. Nick, great to have you with us. I, I know it's a pretty devastating day for the industry. Just give us some perspective here, because for all the thousands of jobs I just mentioned, you've warned that far more are at risk. Far more are at risk. There are so many jobs attached to the airline industry and those that are inside each individual airline. It's estimated about seven to 14 jobs rely on a single airline job. More than that, there other airlines are looking towards the future and what's gonna happen, both with demand and what they're gonna do. And some have delayed layoffs, hoping for the best, hoping for another package to keep our airline employees in, you know, on the payroll. Uh, we're a little bit different as an industry because our employees, once they're off the payroll, you can't just bring them back and put them back on an airplane or put the machinist back under the airplane. Because of safety regulations, there's a constant process of recertification and retraining that goes on. So you can't just take the keys and throw them at the pilot and say, 
okay, start up the plane after they've been off for a month or two. So we're hopeful that they will come to a deal up on Capitol Hill uh, between Congress and the administration. Uh, today is just the start. You know, so many people have already taken voluntary leaves um, and voluntary furloughs, and it's much better to keep them on the payroll, off the unemployment line, with jobs, with health care. Just explain what you meant by that, because I think this is a very important point. Of the 32,000 layoffs that we've heard from the two largest airlines today, how many of those, if they do reach a deal in, in D.C., could then just be called up and said, hey, guys, come back into come back in and, and you can start work again? And, and how many would have a delay of what time are we talking in order to sort of infiltrate them back into the workplace? Well, both United and American have indicated that if a deal is reached within the next couple of days, they will bring those employees back. Uh, two things about that, Julia. You have to look at what it means to the employee to be hanging in the balance for this long yeah. and then to be furloughed today and then brought back. But they have said, American and United and our, our other carriers said, they will try to put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's not that easy. After a day or two, can you do it? Yes, with great difficulty. Longer than that, every single day becomes far more difficult to do it. So when some members of Congress tell me that we might reach a deal in two weeks or four weeks or six weeks, that's a very little help to the people paid off because employees start to move around. They get, if they're furloughed, they have to be replaced and you start to readjust your your employees and your schedule because this is not just furloughs at stake here today. It's also reductions in service to a whole bunch of different communities, uh, small, medium and large, that are going to make flying very different. Yeah, but these are also people who have to worry about paying bills and feeding yes. their families and paying mortgages and things. So to, I think your point about the uncertainty here is is a very valid one. The heartbreaking part of this is that there is bipartisan agreement in Congress to continue the financial aid, to push this back for another six months and come back in, in March of next year and, and work out then what to do about the industry. Nicholas, what's your message? Is, is there frustration on the part of you and the airlines here with lawmakers that simply can't reach a broader decision and the cost is jobs? There, there is frustration uh, with the airlines, with me, with our labor partners. Labor and management have been so united here and working on this for months and months and giving the message that October 1st was a real date. We need help. It's, it is mystifying. You have broad bipartisan, bicameral support on Capitol Hill. You have the president saying three or four times that he wants something to happen for the airlines. We're just asking them to come to a compromise. They are not that far apart. You know, in previous days, you know, they could span the differences. The Speaker and Secretary Mnuchin are working on it. It is our fervent hope that they think about these employees who are losing their jobs, what it means to them on a human level, on a day-to-day -day basis, and frankly, what it's going to mean to our economy. You know, I guess I'm not that smart. I see both a, a human imperative a political imperative and, a, and an economic imperative here. And so we can't figure out why they just can't come to a deal. And we've said to many people on Capitol Hill and the administration, we don't need good intentions. We need a law to pass. Yeah, I, I don't think you're uh, lacking in smarts, uh, Nick. I think um, I wish more would listen to you, quite frankly, with the human imperative, if nothing Thanks. else. Um, there will be those watching this, though, saying, and we've heard it many times over the past few months, that when the going was good 
for these airlines. They were paying money out to shareholders. They could have kept a fund for rainy days like this, even if they could never have anticipated a pandemic. Why should these industries be bailed out or given financial help when many others are struggling? Nick, what's your response to that? Twofold. First, this was not a bailout. All the money that we received was passed through directly to our employees. This was a jobs bill. It is the part of CARES Act 1 that worked absolutely the best. And in terms of the second, all of our airlines, as of March 1st, were considered to have fortress balance sheets. They were designed to withstand an event three times worse than 9-11. That's pretty big. It got wiped out in weeks through no fault of our own. This is, we hope, a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. And in terms of what they did in terms of dividends and buybacks, facts matter. 73% of all the profits we made over the last decade went to our employees, new airplanes, and other product improvements for our customers. 73%. So dividends and buybacks were small. That's a red herring. You have to look at what the airlines actually did over the last decade. 186,000 new employees were added. Wages and benefits, pensions went up considerably. We worked with our labor partners, with our employees, and created a really good product that started competing better than it ever had before. So it took, you know, there was 9-11, there was a 2008 financial crisis. We bounced back. We are a resilient industry. We will bounce back again. But for right now, a lifeline to get us through to next March to keep these valuable employees, the infrastructure of getting planes up in the air, keeping them on the payroll so that as a vaccine comes on, as the desire to travel comes on, and as people realize more frankly about how safe it is to fly today with all of the different things that we have done, including you know intensified cleaning procedure, face mask requirements, the HEPA filters, the ventilation on an airplane gets refreshed. The air gets refreshed 30 times an hour. In your house, it gets refreshed maybe once every four hours. Um, different in a bar and restaurant, you are safer on an airplane than you are anywhere. So the combination of all that leads us to believe that demand will start get come back to the point where we need our employees. We need our planes to get back up in the air. And having these employees all be furloughed for indefinite periods, if not forever, is not a good thing. Yeah, you've got to be in a position to recover when it comes. Nick, great to have you with us. Uh, Nicholas Callio there, the president and CEO of Thank Airlines you. for America. And sir, facts first. Thank you for that. All right, the market open is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the first trading day of the fourth quarter. Yes, the 2020 home stretch is in sight. As expected, we're gaining ground with tech in the lead. Stocks are looking pretty resilient here, I have to say, despite the November election uncertainty, the lack of a D.C. stimulus or financial grade agreement, and of course, the weak U.S. jobs picture, relatively weak. Let's be clear, the numbers today showing an additional 837,000 people signing up for first-time jobless benefits here in the United States. In the last reading, 26 million people still needing aid overall, so collecting some form of benefit. And this comes as major American firms, as we've discussed, announce substantial new job cuts. To get a bigger picture, the all-important U.S. jobs report is out tomorrow. And this comes, of course, as the top political job in the United States remains up for grabs. Greg Valliere joins us now. He's the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, always fantastic to have you 
on the show. I want to start with the debate, but more the fallout from it. You in your note this week talking about palpable gloom among Republicans you speak to. Well, I think so, Julia. Good morning. Nice to see you. Uh, I think a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill are dismayed that the president would not clarify his remark on white supremacists. I think they're dismayed that he looked too angry and belligerent in the debate, which was an opportunity for him to get right back in the race again. And I must say, I think a lot of Republicans are increasingly resigned to him losing. What do you think, Greg? You've resisted making a call so far. Are you ready to make one? I finally made a call this morning in my morning piece. Yeah, I think Biden wins narrowly. Uh, I would not at all be surprised if it takes days or weeks after the election before we know for sure who won. But there's one big thing that Biden has that Hillary Clinton did not have in 2016, and that is a really huge margin among women, college-educated women, professional women, women pretty much across the board favor Biden more than they favored Hillary. Can Trump make a comeback? Because I think this was one of the things that we were focused on in this debate was whether Trump could make an outreach to specific segments of the, of the American population. And, and I know a lot of people looking at that performance and saying, if anything, it's perhaps pushed them the other way. I think he can, Julia. I think two things that are going for him are, number one, he has a tremendous energy level. He'll outwork just about anyone. And number two, I think that he controls the news cycle, whether it's on geopolitics, making announcements from the White House, talking about the vaccine. So he has the ability to control the news spin, and that's a real advantage. You know, you made the point that you think it could be close, even if Biden wins. And what the president didn't rule out was fighting if he thinks there was fraud and clearly if it's a narrow election win for, for Joe Biden. Are you thinking we could see a kind of Bush Gore type scenario where it pushes back into I mean, that took till December, didn't it? I think in, tw- in 2000. It took until December 12th. Mm. So it's uh, it, December 12th is, is obviously a long way after the election. So I do think that is a possibility. I do think it'll be close. And I think the other story that's really crucial for the markets is what happens to the Senate. Now, right now, I'd say the Senate probably winds up a tie, which would give the Democrats in all likelihood control of the Senate. Let's go there then. For investors, what are you saying? Because we actually have very little clarity, quite frankly, on what policy looks like for either party beyond this election. But are you suggesting that for markets, perhaps split government? So perhaps the Democrats take the House, the Republicans take the Senate would be a more stable outcome. And perhaps we don't get that. Yeah, most of the investors I talk to would prefer divided government. They all say it means that uh, Washington would do less harm if there's divided government. But I think there's an increasingly plausible scenario for the blue wave with the Democrats taking everything. That raises two big concerns for the markets. Number one, you could see significant new taxes at some point in 2021. And number two, a lot of key sectors, defense, Fossil fuels, uh, things like that, healthcare, uh, could be negatively affected. I think the regulatory environment would get more strict than the very laissez-faire climate we have right now. What about DC in the interim? Because I thought it was uncanny how suddenly, in the hours following that debate, Nancy Pelosi, Stephen Mnuchin, coming back together, one last gasp chance to get an agreement on stimulus before this election. 
Yeah, you know, I'm a cynic, and I think cynically that Pelosi wants to give cover to her members who are going home in the next few days to campaign. She can say, hey, we passed a bill. The Republicans wouldn't agree to it. Even the White House, with Mnuchin talking about much more money just in the last 24 hours, they can say also, we were willing to spend more. The problem is, even if Pelosi and Mnuchin agree, I don't think the Republicans in Congress, Mitch McConnell, would agree to a, a bill that would be one six, one point seven trillion. That's just too big a number for them to swallow. You know, so your likelihood is we don't get a deal. We we don't get a deal. I think by the end of the year, especially if Biden wins, we will get a deal. But I think it comes later rather than sooner. You know, in this election, and I've watched it now. We've all watched it. I think for years, but particularly in the last year, it feels like Trump is fighting this election, but Trump is also fighting Trump in order to win this election. So what does President Trump have to do between now and Election Day to to hang on to this in your mind? Stay on message. Uh, I think that sometimes he steps on his own message with great frequency. Don't overhype or overpromise a vaccine. I, I think it's pretty clear from listening to the medical experts, we're not going to have a vaccine by election day on November 3rd. We might have a, a vaccine by late winter. That's plausible. But I think Trump has to be realistic with expectations or people will think he's just, you know, he's hyping them. Yeah, don't overpromise. Hmm. Greg, yeah. thank you so much for that. Greg Vallier, Chief at U.S. Policy Trust, just yeah. at AGF Investments there. And my apologies for the connection issues at the end of that interview. All right, up next, with international travel under pressure, Singapore is relying on locals to revive the tourism industry. The head of the tourist board joins us next. Welcome back to First Move. COVID-19 restrictions devastated Singapore's tourism industry. Last year, 19 million travellers visited the city-state. That's three times Singapore's population. With arrivals down 90% in the first half of 2020, the country's tourism board has a plan to salvage the sector, and it involves staycations. Joining us now, Keith Tan, CEO of the Singapore Tourism Board. Keith, fantastic to have you on the show those numbers are stark and they tell the story. How long are you anticipating it takes to see recovery? Because that gives us a sense of how long you have to be thinking here. Well, that's the multi-million dollar question, isn't it? A multi-billion dollar question. That's but what we've told the industry here in Singapore is to be prepared for a long winter. We don't expect a quick recovery back to 2019 levels, which was a record year for us. It will take many years for confidence to come back, for people to come back, and for the airlines to come back as well. So we've to be, we need to be prepared for a long, prolonged slump. So it's a, it requires a short-term plan. It also requires a, a medium to longer-term plan as well. And part of that is Singapore rediscover. What does that involve? Well, ultimately, we care about helping our locals understand and learn a little bit more about Singapore. In any given year, uh, lots and lots of Singaporeans and locals travel abroad because it's so easy to travel to our region, to the countries around us. And they, they barely spend any time exploring different precincts, different attractions here in Singapore. We now have an opportunity to help our locals learn more about places and districts in Singapore that perhaps the last time they visited as a young child. So that's our, our hope. 
That's why we are trying to work with our hotels, our attractions, our tour operators to come up with bundled packages that encourage not just a plain vanilla staycation, but really encourage exploration of the different precincts in Singapore. Yeah, sometimes you're just too busy to appreciate what's going on around you. In your backyard, yeah. How much investment are you putting into this? Are you subsidising some of the visits that people can take to, to local attractions too? Well, we are putting the finishing touches to a 320 million Singapore dollar uh, campaign, uh, which is essentially uh, an effort to provide vouchers and credits to mm. Singaporeans. Uh, it will be approximately 100 Singapore dollars for every adult, uh, and then a subsidized amount for minor uh, children tickets uh, to attractions and so on. So that is meant to ins- uh, incentivize our locals to go out. This will be a, at least a seven-month-long campaign starting in December, stretching over to uh, next June, because that coincides with the major school holidays here in Singapore. We're also seeing uh, reports of flights to nowhere, even of cruises to nowhere. Keith, what can you tell me about those? Because I think for people around the world, there was a lot of fear induced at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis by what we saw happen on cruises. Is this really something that Singapore's looking at? Well, our starting point is that we believe cruise demand will eventually return. Uh, when we look at our market research and we talk to our partners in the region, we believe that there is still an inherently strong underlying demand for cruise. Maybe not now, but perhaps in a, a year or two or a little bit beyond that as well. Actually, the penetration of cruise in Singapore and in Southeast Asia is very thin. They've really scratched the surface of the middle class here. East Asia, uh, unlike, say, Europe or America, which has a lot more developed cruise markets. So we believe the long-term prospects of the cruise industry is strong. Now, if that's so, then what can we do in the short term, right, to sustain the cruise industry and to help them continue to have some business in the region? So what we've tried to do is to look at a very scientific, risk-based approach to see whether we can restart cruise, which we stopped uh, several months ago. How can we do this in a safe way? Uh, we are looking at uh, all sorts of protocols. We have worked with the cruise lines. We, have engaged, we are engaging uh, a certification company to come and work with us to determine the protocols that need to be in place uh, on board a cruise before we can resume safe cruising. Yeah, I mean, at the core of this is, is health and safety. What about pressure from the tourism industry itself on the government? What are you hearing from them to say, look, perhaps we need to loosen some of the restrictions and allow some degree of foreign tourism into the country to help support us? Well, there have been two main uh, asks from the Mm. tourism industry. Number one is helping them address the costs, right? Because even when there's no revenue, there are still costs that they incur. And over the past several months, the Singapore government has put in over $100 billion in uh, Singapore dollars to support our businesses in helping them deal with their costs, primarily uh, manpower costs, but rental costs, utilities costs, and other sorts of costs as well. Number two, obviously, as what you've mentioned, is really how can we stimulate demand, especially from, from foreigners coming into Singapore at the time when, when borders are closed. That's a major issue. And Singapore has slowly started to reopen our borders. We've unilaterally opened our borders to New Zealand, to Brunei, to Australia and Nam. 
and we hope to be able to do so to more countries that are safe, that have gotten the COVID situation well under control. Uh, but even if we do so unilaterally, uh, the other countries, as long as they have their own restrictions for outbound travellers, then the, then the traffic will be very thin. Yeah, I mean, this is key, isn't it? And it's the quarantine, the challenges of quarantine, never mind just the safety on flights. You can't have an industry that drops 90 percent for for the foreseeable future, Keith, as you've pointed out, without losing jobs. What about your approach for perhaps providing retraining, looking at other options for some of these people that simply can't be employed in a sector that's been so pummeled by this crisis? Absolutely. That's been a major priority even before uh, COVID. So skills upgrading is a major preoccupation of the Singapore government and the Singapore economy because we know that there will be disruptions to the economy, COVID pandemic or other forms of disruptions along the way. So even before COVID, we've been embarking on major efforts to retrain, to upgrade, uh, so that people in the tourism sector learn new skills that could be applicable to other sectors. Now, of course, we have to really double down on those efforts so that uh, some of the displaced workers from the tourism industry can segue into other sectors of the economy that still require workers. That will be a major priority for the tourism board. It makes perfect sense. I have to say, obviously, I was in Singapore at the back end of last year, and I'm a huge fan of Changi uh, Airport. Wouldn't even need to see anything else. Just that water feature <laughs> is just phenomenal. So, yes, beautiful. Keith, it yeah. is just astonishing. Keith, great to have you with Thank us. You. Thank you so much. We'll speak soon. Keith Thank Tan, you. the CEO of the Singapore Tourism Board there. Thank you. Right up next to South Africa now, also looking to give its tourism industry a boost. But where Singapore is betting on domestic travel, South Africa's reopening its borders. We've got the latest next. Welcome back to First Move. South Africa reopening its borders Thursday as it's easing COVID-19 restrictions. But not all travellers will be allowed in. People from high-risk countries remain blacklisted, and they include the United States, the UK, France and Russia. Eleni Jokas joins us now. Eleni, great to have you with us on the show. So a hugely important step to help regalvanise the economy, but not without some limits at least. Absolutely. So if you're in a high risk country, that basically means if your infection rates and death rates are higher than that of South Africa, then that means you're in a high risk country. It's 57 countries in total, including the United States. And as you mentioned, the likes of the UK, France, our emerging market peers, Russia, India, the likes of Brazil as well. Um, Travel to and from those countries would be strictly for business, for diplomats and for repatriation. Now, of course, this has many caveats in place. All travelers coming into the country needs to prove their COVID-19 negative status with a medical certificate no older uh, than 72 hours. The medium and low risk countries include China, the UAE and most African countries as well. So we're going to see leisure and business travel finally resuming. Julia, I have to say, look, uh, air travel was the reason that we got cases in South Africa. And of course, the big reason that we actually saw this very aggressive approach and reaction to the pandemic that included the the dropping of domestic travel as a whole for many months and now finally the resumption of international travel is the reason that we've seen 
relatively manageable pandemic uh, in the country. And importantly, the cases now are starting to drop. The question now is, um, are more cases going to be coming through the borders? Uh, and that is going to be a really important factor that government will be looking at. Yeah, they're going to have to watch it incredibly closely. But your point about the testing within 72 hours of coming in is so important here as well. What about, given what you said about domestic travel shutdowns and for so long, what impact has that had on local airlines and the industry and the associated businesses? Pretty devastating, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, such a vital question. And it's not just the airlines. We know that South African Airways was in trouble before the pandemic, but other airlines had to file for business rescue. We've seen job losses within the airline industry in South Africa. Hoteliers, the bed and breakfast, the small business owners, the value chain that feeds into the hospitality industry has really been decimated. And of course, we've seen incredible pain coming through on all fronts. It's an industry that accounts for 10% of the country's GDP. Tourism is a vital uh, force in the country. And the most important spenders, the big spenders, are from the US and the UK and Europe. And of course, they are high-risk countries at the moment. So the resumption and the recovery of tourism it's still something that is very far away, but this is one step in kind of bringing back normality. I've spoken to so many CEOs, Julia, um, and they say that business travel is something they're going to be relooking, uh, whether it's really necessary. They've been able to operate remotely just fine over the past few months. But it's going to be interesting to see if there's pent-up demand, or whether we've actually seen demand destruction, and what kind of numbers we'll truly see coming through uh, our borders on the international air travel front. Yeah, hugely important questions to raise, but a small start, but a start, and we'll see how it goes. Eleni Jokos, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. And that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe, and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.